He was an unlikely candidate. He was a sheep breeder, not just a shepherd, not just the one who herded the sheep. He owned them, an entire field of them, a herd, a lot of sheep, probably cows, a herdsman. He's an unlikely candidate. Not just the guy who works on the farm, not just the ranch hand, but the owner of the herd. If any of you drove up Interstate 5 north this summer, you know a couple of hours over the grapevine, you are welcomed by this smell. But shortly, you're welcomed by a sight of cows, cattle. As far as you can see, they're for a little stretch there on I-5. Is that right? They're just, they're spotted everywhere. I always think of who, he owns a cattle on a thousand hills. Cattle everywhere. Your nose is always there, but then you see these cows. Whoever owns that ranch, that's a herdsman. Whoever takes care of those cattle, that person knows what to do to to get the maximum milk production out of these cows. That person knows how to keep them disease-free. The owner knows how to assist in the birthing of a calf. The owner who takes care of those cows is a herdsman. You should think of Amos when you see a ranch like that. Amos from the little village of Tekoa, 10 miles south of Jerusalem. Amos is a herdsman. The only time we read that word in the Bible is for Amos. He lives around 760 B.C. He knows herds and he knows fig trees. He grows a special kind of fig that you must slit the skin on the fruit in order for the the fig to ripen on the tree. Special kind of fruit Amos knows how to grow. And for all we can tell from reading our Bible, Amos was pretty happy with his day job. He didn't ask for more. But in the book in your Bible, which bears his name, we read in chapter 7, verse 14, Amos' own confession, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, which means I was neither a professional prophet called officially, nor was I in a prophet's guild. I wasn't born into this. I was none of that. I was a herdsman, a shepherd. And I also took care of sycamore fig trees, special kind of figs. But the Lord... The Lord took me from tending the flock, and he said to me, Go prophesy to my people. A professional rancher, not a professional prophet, this is Amos. He makes his way from Tekoa in the south, down by Jerusalem, all the way up to the northern part of the kingdom, to Israel. And he goes with a message. He goes to a territory where they not only don't know him as a rancher, they don't know him as a prophet. So he comes as a nobody. He he comes to the northern kingdom of Israel. Amos comes at a time of relative peace. In fact, it is true that during this reign of Jeroboam II, there was prosperity and abundance in Israel. In fact, this kind of abundance is not seen again. It's the last of the full living for this chosen kingdom, Israel. And you know how it is when there's prosperity and when there's an abundance and when there's plenty, oftentimes there's corruption. Oftentimes when there's plenty, there's abuse, there's self-indulgence. When there's plenty, sometimes those with the least power are more deprived and those with the most power are rewarded when there's plenty. When there's plenty, people tend to forget God. 
They even forget that they are accountable to one another in the kingdom. When there's plenty, people forget that there's a code they live by. Perhaps when there's plenty, people even forget they're the chosen nation, holy ones of Israel. So Amos goes up there. His eyes are open, though. He doesn't know these people. He sees what's happening in the kingdom. He sees what God sees, and he goes with a message. Amos chapter 6. We'll move around just a little bit, but Amos 6, you can follow for a few verses. Here's the little herdsman with this great big message from God. Woe to you, verse 1, who are complacent in Zion, to you who feel secure on Mount, uh, on Mount Samaria, Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. Go to Calneh and look at it. Go from there to Hamath and then go down to Gath and Philistia. Are they better off than your two kingdoms? Is their land larger than yours? You put off the evil day and you bring near a reign of terror. You lie on beds full of ivory. You lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away at your harps like David, and you improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful, and, and you use fine lotions, but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph, that is, those among us who are suffering. You don't grieve over that. Verse 7, therefore, you'll be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and your lounging will end. The Lord abhors the pride of Israel. The sovereign Lord has sworn by himself. The Lord God Almighty declares, I abhor the pride of Jacob. I detest his fortresses. I will deliver unto this city and everything in it. Oh, there's more. If you move over to Amos chapter 4, verse 1, that's where he calls the women fattened cows. That goes over real good, doesn't it, ladies? He calls the women in the northern kingdom, you fattened cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and you crush the needy, and you say to your husband, bring us drinks. Move to chapter 2. Amos isn't finished. Chapter 2. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground. They deny justice to the oppressed. Amos 5, you trample on the poor. You force them to give you your grain. That means you're collecting debts from people who already have nothing. What are you doing? They are the poor. Therefore, though you've built your stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you've planted your lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. You chosen nation, behaving as if there are no expectations in this community. As if anything goes, these are your people. It is said that there is more bad news in the prophet Amos than in any of the other prophets in our Bible. The first to write from the written prophets during this time period of about the 8th century forward. We start with him because he writes first, and I start with him because he has the most bad news. How would you like to be the one to go up there to the northern part of the kingdom and call the women fattened cows? Would you like that job? More bad news in Amos than any other, other prophets. In, verse, in chapter 5, there is a lament, really a, a funeral dirge that goes for the entire chapter. And it ends with God saying, I hate your festivals, nation of Israel. I hate them. That would be, I hate your Sabbath worship. 
I take no delight in your assemblies. Amos 5.22 now. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your nation. Away with your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But, verse 24, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Let what is right happen. Let the people of God be. A text Martin Luther King quoted 43 years ago this past Sunday. March on Washington, D.C., although his translation was, and let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And it's a, it's a powerful application of Amos. It's accurate. You know, things don't end well for Amos. He is banished from this kingdom, and you should pay attention. The priest trumps the prophet every time in the Old Testament. The priestly system. For the priest up there in Bethel heard what Amos was doing, and he called the king, sent a message to the king, Jeroboam II, and said, you got to get this guy out of here. you got a loose cannon up here, Amos. Do you know he's even talking about you? He's making up his own words. He's saying, you're going to die by the sword, king. And so they banish Amos. They make him leave their equivalent of their sanctuary up in the north. They send him away, never to come back. He's publicly ridiculed. That's Amos. That would be a great job. Maybe this is why when we see prophets depicted in artwork, their faces are always long and forlorn and sad because they're outcasts. They're despised. I'm going to show you a picture of prophets in the cathedral in Strasbourg in France. If you can see these faces, this is almost always what the prophets look like when they're depicted in artwork. Of course, they don't bring good news. They're despisable. They're, they're a little bit repulsive. In fact, even the prophet wasn't sure they liked the sound of their own words. Amos could be repulsive to himself. The job of the prophet gets people kicked out of the community. There is usually no role in the, glory, in the job of a prophet. We had a prophetic voice in our pulpit last week. Those of you who were here... There was a prophetic voice calling people. Ask Mark Carr how it is to have something like that laid on your heart and feel the need to deliver it to the people knowing it's not going to be a popular message and you might be banished. If not from the pulpit, from your circles where you're comfortable being a prophet, it's, it's hard work. The biblical prophets have long been suspicious because people have said, well, you know, they're pretty much just insane. In fact, I asked a couple of teenagers this week, I say prophets, you say what? They said, crazy men who walk around the desert naked. And it is true, there's a lot of naked prophets leading up to these writing prophets. It's been studied for a long time. There is, seems to be this close association between inspiration and neurosis, between prophecy and insanity. Anytime something departs from the normal, it gets 
This diagnosis is pathological. Prophets are these group of people just waiting to be hospitalized. These ecstatic kind of frenzy, on-the-edge folk. We're not sure what to do with them. And modern-day prophets really don't help make our biblical prophets look any better. Have you listened to your news this week? Two modern-day prophets were in the news this week. One, one was picked up by the police. He's been on the FBI's most wanted list for 100 days man was arrested in Nevada earlier this week driving a red Cadillac, eating a tossed green salad, $54,000 in cash in the back of the car with mail addressed to the prophet, 15 cell phones, a busy guy. That's one of the modern-day prophets in our world this week picked up by the police. Another one, the headlines describe the second prophet who's from Puerto Rico with this headline, he's divine or he's dangerous, but he's still got disciples. Comes from Puerto Rico. Did you see the interview with this man? First, he just called himself the other when he was predicting the return of Jesus Christ in 2004. When Jesus didn't come, he just took the name Jesus Christ. And he has hundreds, if not millions, of followers in Latin America, in our country, certainly in Miami. He drives around in an armored BMW, wears a bulletproof vest when he stands up to speak, this prophet. He's done away with sinning and forgiveness. We have no need for that in, in this world, as well as most other Christian doctrines. There's a modern-day prophet. There was another case of a mistaken identity of a prophet this week. We had our union constituency meetings at Ontario Convention Center. This is every five years when our region, the Pacific Union, gets together to do the business of the church where the, the leaders of the church are elected, the president and all of the administrative team. Pastor Dan was present. I was present. We drew the short sticks this year. We went out to the Ontario Convention Center. On the list of delegates, it read that Christ was present. In fact, an official delegate list was printed in the Union Recorder last month, and it said Christ was a delegate, and no one disputed it, and the Union sent everything to print and sent the packets out, and when it was time to count and seat the delegates, Christ was on the list. Christ Oberg. It's been an interesting week. <laughs> it was an interesting two days. Christ, I'd like, may I be the first to introduce you to Christ? I'd like to have lunch with you, Christ. So happy to call Christ my friend. I'm still getting emails. Christ, will you come speak to our group? Modern-day prophets don't make our biblical prophets look any better. But that is the wrong way to look at biblical prophets. There is no shortage of crazy people in the world. As we begin our weeks together talking about prophecy, and in particular, biblical prophecy, and looking at the biblical prophets in the Old Testament for a few weeks, and then moving to Revelation, I'll suggest these guidelines for our conversation. First, 
We'll have to hear the prophets in their own situation. We'll have to hear them in their own day and in their own language. Amos really did live in a village, and when he predicted that the nation would go into exile, he really was talking about the people right around him. We sometimes read prophecy in the Bible, and we think in terms of our language and our ideas and our experiences in our world. We have to always start with what's happening in Amos's world, in the world of the biblical prophet. Sometimes we've taken the prophet and we've placed him in such a place, he, him or her, there are female prophets in your Old Testament, and we've, we have projected back into that prophet a variety of events that they predicted, and, and somehow we think they stand at a certain place in history, and you'll look at a chart here where they've got vision that goes all the way to the end, to the New Jerusalem. They can see the forest, but not necessarily the trees. They know how this is all going to turn out, even from the Old Testament position. The prophet's gaze is up and far out. And what that does is it negates everything that was going on in the prophet's world. And everything that's happened in history from 750, 760 B.C. till today, because the prophet's vision is always down first, always at his feet, always out in his or her community, always in the next city over. The prophet has eyes for here and now, not just way out in the future. And we have to read the Bible that way. The second thing that leads us to then is prophets tend to have a lot more to say about the here and now than they do about predicting events. Are you following me? If their eyes are down and they're watching their real world and they're speaking for God, they're much more engaged with what's happening now in the contemporary world and far less engaged in making far-off predictions, prophetic predictions that will come true 500 years, 3,000 years later, prophets necessarily are occupied with today's business. Second, second principle we better keep in mind. So it's less about predictive prophecy. The third principle, and I suggest that you read a little Abraham Joshua Heschel during this sermon series. Nobody says it as well as Heschel does, on the role of a prophet. No, not ecstatic. No, not somebody ready to be committed into a psychiatric unit. Somebody who is listening to the heartbeat of God. A prophet is so enmeshed with what God is thinking and feeling and so enmeshed in the world at the same time that sometime in prophetic language, the prophet uses the first person the second person and the third person moves back and forth when the prophet's talking about the message from God, like it's the message from himself or herself, but it's the message from God at the same time. The prophet's so wrapped up in all of this. And then you should expect that there is a voice in there that should sound familiar. You should be able to detect a voice. It shouldn't be confusing. Two weeks ago, in the Sabbath school lesson here in the sanctuary, I laughed at the title, and many of you did in your small groups, when the title was 1844, Made Simple. Someone stood up in this group, immediately raised their hand and said, I'd like to know who came up with that title. Nothing is simple in prophecy. I took 100 pages for Clifford Goldstein to write about it in his book. Is that simple, someone said? 
you should, I should be able to hear the voice of something familiar in prophecy. It shouldn't be so confusing and so difficult that people set aside their their Sabbath school quarterlies, as I heard from up north this week, I was talking to my mom and she said, it's just so overwhelming. We've decided we're not even going to study the Sabbath school lesson until they move on to a better topic. Prophecy shouldn't be like that. You're listening for a voice, a familiar voice. When I was driving across Washington State sometime early in the spring from Seattle to Walla Walla, there isn't much out there. Have you done that drive? It's not a good drive. You don't smell cows like I-5, but, but it's pretty quiet out there. Turn the radio on. There's a lot of static. I thought I'll, I'll listen to some music. First thing came on was country music. That's not really my thing. I kept turning the station. More static, more static. I came to a revival. Somebody was just hellfire, brimstone, preaching. And you sinners, and you sinners. And I heard the word sinners five, ten times. I thought, I don't think so. I think I'd rather listen to country music. <laughs> Turn the station a little more, and I land on a voice. Well, that voice sounds familiar. Out in the middle of nowhere, the places you pull off to get a snack, it, it looks like you're safer to stay on the freeway out there. No, I don't even know where I am, out in the middle of that eastern Washington flat spot. But there's a voice I recognize. Who is this voice? I keep listening. Oh, that voice is familiar. I know this voice. This is a gentle person. This is a person, I can see this person. They smile. They oftentimes have a folder full of papers. And, and when they talk to me, they sometimes fling their pen at me while they're making their point. And who is this voice? This is a happy person. This is a person who usually wears a suit. This person, who is this person telling people about the myths of the common cold? And he's right. I'm listening. Yes, it's a myth. It's a myth that you share it and spread it this way. You've got to wash your hands. He's right. Who is this voice I'm listening? Oh, it's our own Elmer Sakala. The little 60-second sound bite on the Lifeline commercial. They interrupted the great revival for a little voice from Elmer. I know this voice. This voice changed my whole drive. I'm not alone out here in the middle of eastern Washington. I know that voice. I like that voice. I can trust that voice. He's right about the common cold. All of that happened inside of me. When you listen to the prophets, you are listening for a voice, and it's a voice you know. It is the voice of God. When a prophet is so carefully in fellowship with God, what the prophet brings back to us is the heartbeat and the voice of God. So if you hear something that doesn't sound like you're God, you're not hearing prophecy. Is that clear? Is that fair? If it doesn't sound like the God you know, the voice you're used to, whose voice is this? It's God's voice. That's a principle for us as we study prophecy from our Bible. For Amos, that voice was very specific. You're not treating the people right. Justice is not happening in this land. The righteous are not living like the rest. Like ev everyone is not living alike. Something is wrong here. And even through all of what feels like anger and the wrath of God, 
when you get to chapter 4 where God, God tells these people, I tried this and I tried that and I tried to call you back to you. I sent earthquakes. I sent locusts. I sent rain. I sent drought. And there's a refrain, a refrain all through chapter 4. And you didn't return to me. And you didn't return to me. And it's building up. The prophet's building up until we come to this verse 4.12. You can read it this afternoon when you get home. Where Amos finally said, what do you expect to happen? I've tried this, I've tried that. It's like a parent. All the punishments, all the consequences aren't doing anything. So he's building up for this grand punishment. Something worse than locusts and slaying your children. Verse 12, chapter 4. Prepare to meet your God. And almost every commentator says about that text, doomsday. Prepare to meet your maker. You expect, you know, Harrison Ford or somebody to pull a gun out. It's, this is your last day on earth. Prepare to meet your God. But the voice that we hear is the voice of God. Prepare to meet your God doesn't mean this is your final day on earth. If they wanted to say that, they would say, prepare for the day of the Lord. That's the final day that earth knows. The day of the Lord is when destruction happens. Prepare to meet your God. They know that word. In Exodus, that's what the children of Israel were told before they went up to Sinai. Prepare to meet Yahweh. Prepare. You're going to have a meeting with him. And later on in in Exodus 34, when the tablets have been broken and, and Moses is to do this all over again, prepare to meet God. Prepare is an invitation. It's an invitation. It's not doomsday. It's you need a face to face with your creator. Things are not going right here in the kingdom. Prepare to meet your God. Prepare to get clear again on what your covenant is about. Prepare to learn all over again. What is justice? What is mercy? How am I supposed to treat these people? Prepare to meet your God. Not to die, to have a face-to-face. Does that change the whole reading? It's the voice of God we're listening for. And always in this prophetic material, wrapped in the anger and the wrath of God, wrapped around that is the compassion of God. Compassion trumps anger every day. You know this voice. It is time for Adventist Christianity to stand up in the world and say no to all the prophetic interpretations that have people scared half to death. This is our God we're talking about. What is there to be afraid of? In Amos, he even said, God even says, I chose you for my family. Remember, I brought you out. You are my people. And at the very end, Amos leaves a little hope for a remnant group who will come back. Yes, because they've been invited to a meeting. Prepare to meet your God. God wants to see you again. God wants to put you back on track. Adventist Christianity needs to tell the world, the world that is anxious and nervous and gobbling up all sorts of doomsday prophecy. It's the best-selling material on the market right now. You see, it's no big deal to have a prophet who reveals the heart of God to you. That That doesn't, Reuters and AP, they're not interested in that story. But somebody who can predict the future and tell me when God's going to come and tell me what, what about all these wars and, and what about Katrina last year, that sells. Friends, here at this church, 
I don't want you to be afraid of prophecy. I don't want you to be afraid about the future. This is the voice of God. I saw it happen in a department store this week. Played out right before my eyes. Mom and Grandma were shopping and a little preschool girl. Isabel, it's time to go, they said. Isabel's behind display tables over here playing her own game, making things up as she went along. She didn't come. She's acting her age. Pretty soon I hear again, but in a loud voice, this time yelling, Isabel, it's time to go. Okay, Mommy's going to go. Mommy's just going to leave you in the store, Isabel. Isabel's still acting her age, playing behind the tables. Mom pulls out her most powerful speech. As she walks to the escalator, Mom says, Bye-bye, Isabel. You're sleeping in the store. Mommy's gone. And the prophet almost jumped out of my mouth. You crazy lady, what are you teaching her? She had said, knock it off, Isabel, or I'm going to leave it here, and I want leave you here. And I want to say, knock it off, mother, what are you teaching her? Knock it off. If you don't get it together, I'm going to leave you here. You'll be here all alone. If you have that message ringing in your head from prophecy you've been taught or prophecy you don't understand, I just want to say this morning, get it out. God is not saying to us, knock it off or I'm going to leave you there. God is saying, prepare to meet your God. I want a face-to-face. Will you be there? Amen.